people see female firefighters, whether it's a TV show or maybe they see the, they see a female in a fire truck as it's going code three to a call and they say, oh, I want to do that. But they don't really understand what the job is all about. From Los Angeles, this is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me today for another edition of Code 3. This is the show that gives you all the information on a firefighting topic that you need in about 20 minutes. Let's get started. A while back, retired firefighter Cindy Schooner-Ball started a blog where she wrote about her time as a sister in a brotherhood. She had plenty of material to work with. For 28 years, Cindy was a career firefighter in Broward County, Florida, fire rescue promoting to captain before retiring. I spoke with her for our Code 3 episode in 2018. Since that time, she realized she had enough stories to fill a book, so she wrote one. It's a great trip through her years of working in and excelling in what was really still considered a man's job. She faced challenges and problems, but overcame them all. The book is out now, and it too is called Sister in a Brotherhood. And Cindy Schoonerball joins me now to talk about her life in the fire service. Welcome back to Code 3. Thank you. Thank you, Scott, for having me. So you have a book now. It's called Sister in a Brotherhood. Yes. And I read that and learned a lot about your experiences that we didn't talk about the last time you were on. You joined the fire service in 1986. For some of us of a certain age, that seems like yesterday, but of course it wasn't. In the book, you mentioned two other women who finished boot camp with you. How was it different for you back then? Uh, I think the expectations were different. Um, It was 1987 when I got hired. I started testing for different departments in 1986. Uh, it, it it was different times, I think, in a lot of ways. We were all older. We weren't 18 years old. We had worked a lot of different types of jobs, and we really wanted something to sink our teeth in. And for me, it was a challenge. It was a challenge, and it was also before all, I would say today, maybe the political correctness, the 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 woke, Me Too, and all of that, all of that stuff that's going on now or has come to the forefront. Uh, it was before that, and, and not to not to not to downplay that. That's it's important that those things are out now. But that wasn't that wasn't the reality of the fire service back then, uh, and I imagine it wasn't the reality of a lot of women, uh, men dominated professions back in that day, and things were just it was a different time for sure. And a lot of times when we use that phrase, it was a different time. What we're saying is that women weren't treated well. Is that your experience from back then? I think that if we weren't treated well, you know, looking back on it, I think it was uh, definitely harsher times. And I think as a female, you just accepted it. Uh, You had to, I always say, and I used to tell a lot of females, you draw, I drew my line in the sand, what, what, 
what I felt was the line that, you know, men, I wouldn't allow them to cross whether it was, you know, their language to me or how I was treated. That was my experience. The times were different. Uh, you didn't, you didn't go to HR, at least. You just kind of sucked it up. And really the excitement of that career to me kind of outweighed a lot of the other stuff because I had been out in the workforce since I was 16 years old. And what I described in the book was I I had dealt with actually a lot worse working in traditional female secretarial banking waitressing jobs than I ever did in the fire service, to be honest with you. Well, now that's interesting. I would have assumed well, no, now that I think about it, in the traditional roles, you were probably honey, and would you get, as opposed to actually being a part of the team? I think that might have a lot to do with it. You know, I was going into such a different type of a career rather than, say, uh, you know, I was a secretary. Uh, I did banking. I was a bank teller when I was in high school. You know, those were the types of jobs banking, of course, had, it was notorious for, you know, glass ceilings. So women didn't, women got to a certain point and that was it. Secretarial, you know, you just, I think in that day you became a secretary. You just were looking for a nice paycheck and some benefits and that sort of thing. I don't think you, I don't think most women thought about, at least I didn't, becoming the CEO of the company. It was just a job. It was just a job. Yes, and and for me, the fire service, it was a it was a passion and a calling. At first, it was you know it was challenging and and scary and you know I it was a career I never thought in a million years that I'd be doing, but it was it was almost like once I once I joined signed up for the fire academy. It, it, it's like I went into a whole different world and started to really realize what it was to have a career that meant something that I could push myself and I could make a difference. And all of the, all of the physical stuff I loved, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't easy. When you see today's female firefighters, do you wonder or do you know how different their experience is now compared to yours in the 80s? I've actually talked to a few. Uh, I had a few when I had the blog uh, private message me. And I hope to talk to, obviously, I, I want to talk to a lot of them. Some, I don't know what their expectations were. Some of them, I felt they kind of gave in too easily. They got their feelings hurt. Some genuinely had some terrible experiences with uh, working with men and they they were I don't know if it was their youth or their inexperience or they just didn't know what to do you know they didn't want to speak up about their 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 problems but they found the fire service was a miserable experience and, and that that makes me sad because I think a lot of it is just people see female firefighters whether whether it's a tv show or maybe they see them they see a female in a fire truck as it's going code three to a call or even in the grocery store. And I, and they say, Oh, I want to do that. But they don't really understand what the job is all about. And maybe they, they, you think by the time they get through the fire Academy and the hiring process, they do, but if they don't have any other women to maybe talk to about it, 
it can be a harsh place. I think part of the reality is that you can go through the training academy and you get a very small taste of the culture, but it doesn't really teach you how to live with five or six other men who aren't used to the idea of a woman working with them or even don't believe a woman should be working with them. But they don't learn that part. I agree. I agree. I always thought I wanted to teach a class in, you know, in, in, in both how to survive in the culture of the fire service as well as uh, a bedside manner class for people who, you know, not really sure how to deal with with patients or deal with different types of personalities. But I, I definitely feel that that's a missing component. To me, you can learn all the basic firefighting skills, medical skills. You can learn all the protocols. You can do them successfully. You can make it to the hiring process and get hired. But that first day on shift, when you show up, and particularly if you're the only woman, and, and even if you're not the only woman, you're still, it's still a very unknown territory for you because now you're working 24-hour shifts. So you're living and eating and training and sleeping and, you know, doing all of the things uh, that, that you do as a fire service. You're doing all those things that you don't do in a nine-to-five job. You have to really learn to deal with a lot of different personalities. And especially that first year when you're a probie, you have to learn not only the ins and outs of the job and the protocols of your department, and you're running the calls at the same time and you're training, you also have to learn what it's like to live with a lot of different people. And that's difficult when you're, you've never done that. When basically, yeah, I, I slept in rooms that were basically... They were eight by 10 rooms with three people in them. And I was the only female and we would get up for calls and basically bump into each other, trying to get dressed to go to the call. And that's, that's kind of a shocker for <laughs> somebody who, who is not familiar with the ins and outs of the fire service. I, I think. Well, I mean, you can be told that it's going to be like that, but to actually experience it something else. That's it. You're absolutely right. I was fortunate because I had a boyfriend that I put through fire school and I would go to the fire station and, and visit him. And I was always very curious, but, you know, I was familiar with, and these were all men, there weren't any women then. And so I was familiar with the routine with the, you know, the shifts. And he would talk to me about the different calls that they ran and just that I knew all about that stuff. So I was a little more familiar, I think, and, and then just, somebody coming out of another job or out of out of school and saying, hey, I'm going to go and join the fire service. Now, you address PTSD in the book. And you were in the early days when it was just starting to be recognized as a real thing. How did your fire department transform from the suck it up culture to actually dealing with PTSD? Uh, I looked at it a little bit differently, but one of my worst calls was a fire in the uh, small nursing home where we had 11 people. But they made us, it was in the early, early days of critical stress debriefing teams would come to the fire station and talk to you. That was really early on. Nobody wanted to do it. I didn't want to do it. We were firefighters. You just suck it up and you move on to the next call. I learned so much. I, I was mandatory to go. 
And after that, I just learned so much about how how critical those teens are in helping people and, and kind of pulling things out of you from all the calls. I, I hadn't run that many calls, but I had run a few calls at that point in my career. And they, they pulled stuff out and they talked to us and counseled us. And, and it was it was an eye opener. Um, still to this day, it's kind of poo pooed. Maybe it's, a, you know, firefighters are different. You know, we're just like, oh, we can take it. We're we're supposed to suck it up and then move on to the next call. And then we found out, you know, many of the firefighters suffered in silence and ended up some of them committing suicide, which is really tragic. You're saying that you you played into that sucking up culture when you were younger as well. I did. I also had. You know, and, I, and I've talked to people about everybody has their own way of dealing with it, of course. But I looked at it like if myself and the crew do everything we can to save lives of the calls that we run on, the awful things that we see, and the outcome is not what we had hoped that it would be or it was beyond our, our scope, beyond our control, that's, that's life. That's part of life. I just, you know, I, I think it's such an honor to be able to have run those calls because so many people, as you know, nor, most people, they don't even like the sight of blood, much less, you know, responding. It takes, it, sta- it takes a special personality and training and experience and maybe wisdom to, to get to that point. I think it's valuable for people if they need to talk. It should be, it should be readily available, which I believe it is now. Sometimes the officer in charge will have to push it because the crew members will, they don't want to feign like they're weak, so they won't admit that they need it. So that's a, probably still a problem. But I just look at it like, you know, it's part of life. And, and unfortunately, you know, those calls remain in your memory banks. Um, I certainly have them. And in, in most, most first responders I've spoken with agree. They, they also have them in their memory banks. You know, you, you go to a certain, uh, especially an area where you worked, you know, if you drive down a street where you ran a certain call or you smell a certain thing or it's just, it comes back to you and that's okay. As long as it doesn't debilitate you or cripple you. And if it does, then at that point, I think you, you, you owe it to yourself, to your family to seek further counsel. Along the same lines, were you at any time worried that you shouldn't admit that you had PTSD because the male firefighters would judge you as being weak? You know, honestly, I I never thought of it like that. I really didn't. I think I, the time that I was on, we talked about the calls, you know, as a crew. We would talk about them on the way back um, uh, at the dinner table. And I don't, I just don't think any of us said we had PTSD. I, I honestly believe in, in the, if we did, we didn't admit it. And I never really felt, I never really felt I had PTSD until maybe I retired and, and thought about, wow, you know, I, I used to write, I used to write about the calls and the people I kept a pad and a pen by my bed and I would write about the calls if they really up really bothered me or if they were funny or just if they struck me as something that I felt like I needed to write about, that's how I got it out. If I felt, you know, was feeling really horrible about a call, I would go home and, and, and run or work out. Or I was lucky I had, I could talk to my husband about it because he was in the same profession. But I just, I think there's probably a lot of us that, that 
just didn't look at PTSD the same way it's look, it, it is today. We just kind of kept it in a small group of friends or coworkers and, and went on with our lives. That's, that's my opinion. I don't know, but that's how I felt. I just, I just kind of went on to the next call. All right. Let's change the subject to something a little more light. I enjoyed the story you told in the book about responding to the mobile home park where the other mutual aid agency was instructed to fight the fires defensively. <laughs> I believe what you said was, give me that line, <laughs> pussy. That, that is a funny call, yeah. This one department, they had a, they had standing orders that they were not to fight trailer fires offensively. They were just supposed to fight them uh, defensively, and we just felt that was wrong. And I, you know, I lived in a lot of trailers as a kid. I thought if you know that's somebody's house, their their belongings are precious to them, and you know if we can save a portion of that, you know, animals or or even even. People could be inside. I mean, it's our job. That's what we that's what we got paid to do. That's what we we're hired to do. So I just didn't find it right that you could stand outside unless obviously there are fires you can't go inside. There was a love-hate relationship with Broward County Fire with a lot of the other departments in the beginning. Why is that? Because everybody, every little town within Broward County's borders wanted to have their own fire department. They wanted their own. And, you know financially it was difficult and they kind of wanted us to go away which we thought you know there were many many times when I thought that I was going to have to start over again in fact my husband and I both thought we were going to be out of a job and we both have to start you know at the very bottom you have to go start testing for other departments and we had a few years on it was just everybody wanted to uh, get rid of the county services and and just become little little cities with their own departments. Luckily, the sheriff at that time decided to take a chance and you know, took us under his umbrella, as I put in the book, and we all of a sudden became very powerful. We were always known as very aggressive firefighters and with, with little resources. And so we wore our badge of honor. We, we were like the, I always say the redheaded stepchildren, but we were aggressive and assertive and we would do what needed to be done. But there were a lot of really talented people who ended up leaving because they were afraid. You know, you, you, there was no stability for a few years. You didn't know if you could count on having a job. So you didn't know if you could buy a house. You didn't know, if, you know, if you were going to start a family. So there were a lot of really, really hard years of making the decision to stay. And those of us that stayed, and then once we became uh, under the Broward Sheriff's umbrella, all of a sudden, you know, we had resources and there were other departments that couldn't afford their firefighters and ended up negotiating contracts. And now at, at this point in time, it's a very big, diverse urban department that those of us who were there in the beginning, and I wasn't there in the very, very beginning, uh, have to be very proud as I'm proud. I'm proud that that it's evolved into what it is today from what it was when I talk about the old timers that came before me. They were they were one man engine companies, and I don't know if people realize how hard that is. They were in stations by themselves, and they're working. They're running fires by themselves, and hope that somebody shows up, either a volunteer or maybe a one person station for mutual aid that would show up. 
And so to go from that to what it is today is, uh, is pretty amazing, but, uh, kind of roundabout to the other departments, you know, they hated us and we hated them. (laughs) It wasn't a lovey dovey relationship with most of them. And we would try to beat them to the fire. And, you know, that's, that's kind of a, you know, we, we prided ourselves on that. And, and obviously back in that day, there were, you know, there were things that would never be tolerated today. And, and, and again, if, if we didn't take care of our own. Give me an example. Well, I talk about in the book about, I talk about a uh, fire chief that, that we had. He was a battalion chief that we had. That he was, he was a great old crusty guy, old crusty chief. And, uh, you know, he would come back to the station at night and he had his carton of chocolate milk and Chinese food. And I'm sure he had a few. He couldn't never say Cindy. He always called me Cindy, which was funny in itself. But, uh, you know, he would go to bed. I mean, we'd take care of him. Um, but he was a good chief. He really was. And so we could have, I mean, in today's world, would that even be tolerated? No, it never, it wouldn't be. Uh, we protected him. And, and uh, I felt like it, you know, I have no regrets about that at all, as I'm sure anybody else who came in contact with him did. The funniest story to me was, uh, you know, the other female and I having to go to the strip club to get our paychecks. And that certainly wouldn't be tolerated today. No, it wouldn't. You sound like you miss it. I I miss a lot of things about it as I'm coming up on, you know, seven years being retired. I miss it, but I'm also so thankful that I got through my career healthy and, and happy. And, and my husband and I both were, were extremely lucky. There's so many, there are so many, as you know, you know, cancer is a leading cause of firefighter deaths more than heart attacks. And we have lost so many in our department alone. I just feel very happy about it. But I had a very difficult time. I talk about that in the book. I had a very difficult time when I retired. I didn't think I would. You know, all of us, we sit, you sit around and probably other jobs too, but the fire service, I remember we all had, uh, we all had an app on our phone once we once we were close to retirement that it had a you know the days the hours the minutes and the seconds until we were retired and we used to kind of laugh with each other and show each other this app you know how long we had left and some of them had like you know somebody in a hammock underneath a palm tree you know like kind of a uh, cartoon character and we would talk about it a lot and and there were times when, you know, you look forward to it and you think, oh, I can't wait to get out of here. And then you don't realize until you leave, you know, the regimen, the discipline, the camaraderie, just the the purpose, how much it affects you, uh, either in a positive way, I guess, or a negative. And it affected me in a negative way for a long time. Well, the new book is great. It's Sister and a Brotherhood. It's available now. And Cindy Schoonerball, thanks for talking with me again on Code 3. Thank you so much, Scott, for having me. And if you'd like to order the new book, just head over to our website, Code3Podcast.com slash Broward for a link to do that. That's Code3Podcast.com slash Broward. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, 
Stay safe. To contact us, get more information on today's show, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.